Hi, my name is Karolina and I believe virology is full of fascinating stories, so I decided to share some of them. How do you look for something invisible? Today I would like to go to the very beginning of the virology field. To the time when people only started to realize that viruses exist and can cause diseases. Because this actually required a whole shift in how people thought about infection. So let me tell you a story about the first virus ever discovered. Before the 19th century and before the discovery that pathogens cause diseases, people had a lot of different theories about what is making them sick. Since germs like bacteria or viruses were invisible to humans, people looked for other causes to blame, be it witchcraft or punishment from gods. For instance, it was believed that diseases could be caused by astrological influences. So when doctors determined how to treat someone, they might take into consideration the position of planets. Or in ancient Persia, diseases were associated with demons, and an illness may be cured by exorcism. The first clues about the causes of diseases were observational. There are texts dating already back to the 4th century BCE that correlated symptoms with geographical or meteorological conditions or with lifestyle. So for example, you could observe seasonality of some respiratory disease or that malaria is more associated with humid areas. Over time, this concept evolved into a widely accepted theory that diseases were, were caused by miasma, essentially meaning bad air. This theory assumed that the air gets contaminated with poisonous vapors from various sources, such as from waste or from decomposing animals. According to the theory, when people inhaled the contaminated air carrying the miasma, it would enter their bodies and cause illness. And it makes a lot of sense to me that this theory remained popular for a long time, because it was likely supported by solid observations. It seems very reasonable that in areas with decomposing animals, which were supposedly spreading the miasma, you would observe the spread of diseases. Except today we have more complex explanations than just attributing illnesses to the poisonous air. However, in the 19th century, people were already abandoning the idea that diseases are caused simply by bad air. The development of the first microscope allowed observation of bacteria, and it was shown that diseases can be infectious and caused by microorganisms. Great work was done, for example, by German scientist Robert Koch, who identified the bacterium responsible for tuberculosis and established criteria for linking bacterium to specific disease. But at this time, there were still no viruses between these newly described pathogens, because the search for disease-causing agents was limited by the available research techniques. Yes, the first available microscopes made bacteria visible. But most viruses are much smaller and only became visible under a microscope later when new microscopy techniques were developed. Also, in the case of bacteria, 
It was possible to cultivate them in the laboratory, as they can be grown on plates filled with nutritious acre that provides them with everything they need to keep them happy. But growing viruses is more complex, and it was necessary to first develop cell culture techniques. So how it was discovered that there is this whole different class of pathogens. The first virus ever described didn't infect people. It wasn't some terrifying pathogen costing many lives. Instead, it caused a plant disease. Specifically, this virus was infecting tobacco plants and causing the tobacco mosaic disease. And today, we know the virus under the name tobacco mosaic virus. In the 19th century, when the virus was described, tobacco was a lucrative and economically important crop. The reason people were interested in tobacco mosaic disease was that it had a significant negative impact on the tobacco production. The infection was causing losses ranging from 20 to 80% in production, and in some affected areas, tobacco production had to be even completely stopped. This had a grave economic impact and was posing a huge problem for many farmers who depended on the crop. As you can probably guess, the disease got the name tobacco mosaic disease because the infection causes the appearance of a mosaic pattern on the leaves of the plant. These mosaics are created by patches of light and dark green color on the leaves and the reason they appear is that the virus interferes with the plant ability to produce the green pigment chlorophyll. Another effect of the infection on the plant is stunted growth. The infected plants have smaller leaves than healthy ones, and the overall size of the plant can be much smaller. I saw a picture comparing an infected plant to a healthy one, and next to the normal plant, the infected one appeared completely shrunken. Another symptom of the infection is necrosis, which basically means the death of some of the plant tissues. The plant is developing necrotic lesions that appear as these black bumps on the leaves, and necrosis is another factor that can significantly impact and decrease the plant photosynthesis. I also read that the tobacco leaves of infected plants tasted extremely bitter. Actually, I have no clue how tobacco leaves are supposed to taste, so let us just assume that consumers didn't go for bitter. So these were the reasons why people wanted to understand the tobacco mosaic disease. And there were three important people who brought us much closer to understanding what is causing it and that the tobacco mosaic virus is to blame. So, in Act 1, we are in the Netherlands in the 19th century with the German botanist Adolf Meyer. Meyer was studying the tobacco mosaic disease, describing the effect the infection had on the tobacco plant and trying to determine its cause. To identify the culprit, he was, for example, investigating various environmental factors. For instance, he suspected and tested for possible role of nutrition. And he also examined the temperature and the amount of light the plants were exposed to. But these investigations into the environmental factors gave him no clue as to what was causing the disease.
But another one of his tests brought him closer to the answer. He observed that a sap from an infected plant can infect healthy plants. In his experiment, he took a sap from the disease plant and then used a thin glass tube to inoculate it into a healthy plant. And then the inoculated plant also developed the disease. And this showed him that disease is infectious and transmissible. But, mistakenly, Meyer hypothesized that bacteria or fungi causes the disease. When he looked for the particular pathogen responsible, he was following the approach established at the time. He was looking for the pathogen under the microscope and he tried to cultivate it in the laboratory. However, he couldn't see the pathogen under the microscope. And looking back, this of course makes sense, because the virus is too small to be observable with the microscopy techniques of the time. He also tried and failed to cultivate the pathogen in the laboratory. Although he did isolate some bacteria from the plants and successfully cultivated them, these bacteria did not cause the disease when injected into healthy tobacco plants. Quite interestingly, in his attempts to replicate the disease, he was also trying some less orthodox approaches. Among his experiments, he was trying to replicate the disease, for example, by injecting the plant with some known bacteria, but also with some little random stuff, such as grated old cheese or with dung from different animals. In the end, even though Adolf Meyer failed at cultivating the disease-causing pathogen, he mistakenly concluded that the disease was caused by bacteria. Moving to Act 2. The next important figure in the research of tobacco mosaic disease is Dmitry Ivanovsky. In 1892, he showed that the sap from the infected plant remains infectious even after filtration. Specifically, he used a filter of unglazed porcelain with pores small enough to prevent bacteria from passing through. So even after filtering out bacteria, the sap remained infectious. At first, Ivanovsky was surprised by his discovery and he assumed that the filter he used must have been defective. However, he found that this observation was reproducible and he obtained the same result even after changing his filters for new ones. But when he was looking for an explanation for this observation, he didn't realize that he was dealing with an entirely new infectious agent. He considered the disease might be caused by a bacterium so small that it could pass through the filter, or possibly by a toxin released by the bacteria. Ivanovsky also made extensive attempts to grow the assumed bacteria in the laboratory, but inevitably failed. In the end, he concluded that the disease must be caused by an unculturable bacterium. Finally, Act 3. It was another scientist who realized that something else than a bacterial infection was causing the tobacco mosaic disease. And he was also the first one to use the term virus to describe the disease's cause. Virus was an older term from Latin, meaning poison. It was a researcher in the Netherlands, Martinus Beiring. He repeated the filtration experiment, 
once again confirming that even after bacteria were filtered away, the sap from the infected plant remained infectious. And he continued to study the pathogen further. He did an elegant experiment where he observed that from the filtrate he could continue to serially infect an infinite number of plants, indicating that the infectious pathogen must be reproducing since it can be isolated again from the newly infected plant. As you recall, Dmitry Ivanovsky previously suggested that the disease might be caused by a toxin, and this experiment was able to distinguish between a toxin and a replicating agent. This is because, after the toxin becomes more and more diluted, at certain point, it would lose the ability to cause the disease. Byring also described that the tobacco mosaic virus cannot be cultured, except in living plants. And he decided to call the infectious agent contagious living fluid. Well, I mean, he did it in Latin, so it was contagium vivum fluidum. And in case you couldn't tell, my Latin pronunciation comes from the speaker icon of Google Translator. So what Byring called a virus wasn't the definition as we are used to it now. Now we know the structure of viruses and that they are the small infectious particles. But he believed the virus was a living liquid, a liquid containing a dissolved, non-particular entity. We now know that the viruses are not soluble or alive, so the name contagious living fluid didn't stick. But still, Martinus Beiring's suggestion that microbes in fact don't need to be cellular changed the definition of pathogens. So these scientists laid the basis for understanding viruses. But more work still had to be done. And it even took another 30 years to resolve whether viruses are particles, as we now know they are, or liquids, as was suggested by Byring. Today, we know the exact structure of the tobacco mosaic virus. A single-stranded RNA molecule encodes the virus genome, and this RNA is surrounded by a protein coat, the virus capsid, to form the rod-shaped viral particles. But of course, it took researchers some time to figure this out. One important milestone happened in 1935, when tobacco mosaic virus was purified and crystallized by Wendell Stanley. The fact that the virus could be crystallized was seen as a big revelation, because it suggested that it is a more a chemical substance rather than a microorganism. Stanley reported that the crystals were infectious and contained protein. Well, Stanley originally reported that tobacco mosaic virus is pure protein. But soon after, his observations were challenged by other researchers who also isolated the virus and showed that it also contains a small percentage of RNA. And in 1939, tobacco mosaic virus became the very first virus visualized by electron microscope, and the pictures revealed it forms the rod-shaped particles only 300 to 15 nanometers in size. And then the final details about its structure were resolved by X-ray analysis. And there were many scientists involved in the study of the virus structure, 
but I would just like to mention that a great portion of the structural work was done by Rosalind Franklin, who is more famous for her X-ray picture of DNA. And even in later years, the tobacco mosaic virus played an important role in the history of molecular biology. It was used to study self-assembly of the viral capsid and the ability of viral RNA and protein to assemble into a specific structure. It also played an important role in the study of the infectivity of RNA and on the example of tobacco mosaic virus was described my favorite mechanism that several viruses use to move between plant cells. The plant cells are enveloped in a rigid cell wall, but they have small connections for cell-to-cell -cell communication, called plasmodesmata. These are too narrow for the virus to pass through, but it was discovered that the virus encodes a protein that can interact with these channels and change their size. This protein was called movement protein, and later it was discovered that other plant viruses use this mechanism as well. It should also be mentioned that despite being called the tobacco mosaic virus, the infection affects other crops as well, for example tomatoes or peppers, and it remains relevant even today. Because the virus cannot be controlled or cured after the infection, it is very important to protect the crops to prevent agricultural losses, for example by following some hygiene standards like washing hands before handling the plants or regular sanitation of equipment. And that's it, that's the tobacco mosaic virus. Thank you so much for listening all the way through. It makes me very happy. And the sources for this episode will be listed in the episode description. And I must say, I really enjoyed reading about this topic. A new episode should be ready in a month again. And if you want to be notified, you can follow the podcast in your podcast app of choice or also on Instagram. If you like the podcast, recommend it to your friends. And if you don't like it, recommend it to your enemies. Again, thank you for listening and let's continue in a month.